Thanks for downloading this podcast from Healthcare Improvement Scotland. My name is Dr Brian Robson and I'm the organisation's Medical Director. We regularly share new ideas and presentations from thought leaders in the fields of innovation, improvement and integration. In this podcast, we hear from Professor Atul Gowandi. Atul introduces us to Peg, his daughter's piano teacher, who is dying and faces choices around quality versus quantity of life. He describes how Peg and her husband, Martin, consider her preferences for care and the trade-offs that allow her to be at home and be in control of her symptoms. Atul describes what matters in the end and how the priorities and preferences of the individual are key and that having conversations earlier makes a huge difference to patients, their families and to caregivers. He describes the evidence base, the challenges and he also offers many practical approaches and tools that might just help you in your work. Now, let's listen to the conversation with a tool. Very shortly, we're going to be listening to Atul Gowandi, MD. Atul is a surgeon, a writer, and a public health researcher. He practices clinically at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Massachusetts in the USA where he is a general and endocrine surgeon. Among many interests and activities, Atul is also professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine, and the author of three New York Times bestsellers, including The Checklist Manifesto and uh, Being Mortal, uh, the latter of which formed the basis, uh, the main subject matter when Atul delivered the prestigious BBC Reef Lectures in 2004. I could go on and on, but I'm not going to because we want to hear from the man himself. Atul, a very warm Scottish welcome from the team here at Healthcare Improvement Scotland in Glasgow, and indeed a warm welcome from all of the HisQI Connect participants uh, tuning in from around the globe. Uh, We are looking forward to what you have to say to us, and I'm going to hand control now over to you. Well, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the chance to talk to this community. Thank you to everybody who showed up. And I'm still Googling what the Lithuanian flag looks like, so you have to give me another minute here. But um, uh, the opportunity to get to talk to you about, you know, the subject for a group that's focused on safety and quality, um, the puzzle of what does safety and quality mean for the care of people with a terminal illness, the care of people who have unfixable problems, um, is the one that got me started writing on this subject in the first place. What does it mean for us to be really great at what we do in these instances? I want to start with a story that I wrote about in the book. Um, um, but I'll show you uh, the person and, uh, and who they are. Um, this is Peg Batchelder. She was my, daughter, my daughter's piano teacher, um, and my story about her starts when I got a call from her husband telling me that she was in the hospital. Peg uh, was my daughter's piano teacher when my daughter was 13 years old. Um, we'd been with her long enough to know that she'd in fact gotten through a, uh, a treatment for cancer uh, several years back. Um, She had a rhabdomyosarcoma, which is a cancer of the soft tissue of the pelvis, and the sarcoma 
had uh, invaded into the bone but was only local. And she'd gone through what she called her year in hell with surgery, uh, chemotherapy, radiation. Um, but she got through it. There was no evidence of disease when they were done. She could return to her life in teaching hobbled uh, but at that point, really only by having to um, walk with Canadian crutches, the crutches that um, go around, on, uh, attach onto your forearms. Uh, so she was uh, back doing yoga. She uh, couldn't do bicycling like she used to, but she could still take her dog out. And most importantly for her, she was able to get back to teaching her students. Um, she was now 62 years old. She was, uh, remained with an excellent prognosis. But then she developed, um, as we'd learned uh, a few months before, uh, a complication of her chemotherapy emerged, myelodysplastic syndrome, a leukemia-like condition that can be caused by chemotherapy. So she was detected to have dropping blood counts, she therefore needed to go back onto now a different kind of chemotherapy to address this leukemia-like condition. And um, she was determined to keep on teaching. Uh, and so she would take her therapy. We would occasionally get a call that, that, her, uh, that the lessons that my daughter was taking had to be uh, moved to a different date or postponed for one week. Um, but you know, she had, uh, Peg had managed, and it had been uh, pretty remarkable. Um, we got phone calls, however, for the, for the three successive weeks that, that she was postponing the lessons. And we didn't know why, but it was unusual that that was the case. And so when I got the call from Martin saying that she was in the hospital, I kind of knew something was up. Um, he put her on the speakerphone for their uh, for their iPhone. Um, she was. They were both there in her hospital room, and I asked, "What's up?" And she said that her treatment for her myelodysplastic syndrome wasn't working. She ended up developing fevers. Uh, the thought was that maybe she had an infection. Her blood count, uh, her white cell count, had dropped exceedingly low. Um, they did a scan uh, to try to find where the infection might be coming from. And what they found was that the cancer was back. Not the myelodysplastic syndrome alone, but in fact her rhabdomyosarcoma had returned now in, not, in another part of her pelvis and had spread throughout her liver as well. So now here she was in the hospital. She was admitted with difficulty controlling her pain. She had become incontinent um, because of difficulty moving and getting to a bathroom in time. Um, they were treating her with daily transfusions now to maintain her blood counts. She was on pain medicines for her pain, steroids for the tumor fevers. The team told her that there were no uh, conventional chemotherapy options that she had. She had um, the possibility of going on an experimental therapy of giving her a, 
high-dose chemotherapy and uh, treatment um, and doing a uh, bone marrow transplant experimentally, that was, there was an offer of that kind of possibility, or they told her, we could keep you comfortable um, and, uh, and make sure you're not in pain. What she heard was, we can try to do something, or we can do nothing. And what she wanted to know was, what should she do? And I have to say, this for me was the moment that I struggle with. I'm a cancer surgeon primarily, and when I'm um, faced with this question of what to do, um, I'm never quite, I've never quite been clear, how do I go about understanding what, how to walk through that moment with somebody? It comes up with, uh, here with a friend and teacher of my child, comes up with patients, comes up with family. All of us, I think, have, who, who are in practice clinically have these kinds of questions come up. But I think it's also the moment that we struggle with as a society, as healthcare systems. And the question that we're struggling with is, what do we want for her in that moment? What do we think it means to be excellent here? Do we do anything, no matter what, offer whatever possibility there might be, or do we just say, you know, we're, we're going to keep you comfortable. We're going to make sure you don't suffer. And um, what always felt clear to me is that offering up that option never felt like it was very successful. It never felt very good. It never felt like I was clear about what we were really trying to accomplish. And what I realized and became the way I opened my book, Being Mortal, was that I'd learned a lot about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality was not one of them. The focus in my training, medical school and surgical training, had been on how to fix people's problems, and there's nothing a surgeon loves more than the opportunity to fix a problem. But then I came into my practice realizing and experiencing how often the people who were coming in to see me were seeing me about unfixable problems, sometimes a terminal condition, uh, sometimes chronic conditions that we weren't going to be able to make go away. And then the puzzle was, what does it mean to be excellent? What is our job even in those situations? I was, you know, as I dug into the problem, I ended up doing interviews with more than 200 people um, uh, who had experience with serious life-limiting illnesses, uh, whether as patients or as family members. Um, and then I also interviewed scores of clinicians uh, and among the, and then, I, and then I, was, I did a lot of research on the studies that were out there. Among the um, studies, the many studies in the field that I really had not been aware of um, was uh, this study, which was emblematic of the kind of results that I was finding. It was being led by a team at the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, under a researcher named Jennifer Temmel. And what she was looking at were people 
who were undergoing um, therapy for advanced lung cancer, stage 4 lung cancer. The average survival in the trial was just 11 months. There were no survivors beyond three months. There was a terminal condition. But we're in an academic institution that also offers the opportunity to participate in research trials and perhaps, um, and, and some trials which have turned out to uh, have had a remarkable effect in helping lengthen people's lives. Um, and so the, uh, so the trial that they ran was one in which half of the patients were assigned to receive the usual oncology care. And the um, uh, other half of the patients were assigned to receive the usual oncology care plus a palliative care clinician to, um, uh, to see them as well. And the group who got a palliative care clinician right from the beginning of their therapy, right from the beginning of diagnosis, not just when you're coming to the end, that group ended up having a remarkably different course than the others. You can see on this graph that this group was 50% less likely to still be taking chemotherapy when they'd also been seeing a palliative care physician alongside their oncology physician, 50% less likely at two months before they came to the end of life, and they were 80% less likely to be on chemotherapy in the last two weeks of life. They also had markedly better measures of um, having less suffering. They had lower rates of, de of um, uh, severe anxiety, for example, as well. Um, they, had, uh, they spent more time at home. They had about one-third less chemotherapy, one-third less time in the hospital, and as a consequence, one-third less costs. They started um, uh, their, uh, they, were st they, they chose hospice care more often and started it earlier than the, uh, than the standard group. And Q was the kicker. The, um, let's see if we can, there we go. Here is the survival curves. And what you see is that the, um, that the group who received their early palliative care lived 25% longer on average. They were doing better. They were stopping therapy sooner, and they lived longer. That was incredible. That was extraordinary to me. And you have multiple studies showing that uh, this just happened to be the most rigorously done, showing that involvement of palliative care early on was, was very powerful. So then the question becomes, how do you scale this? And that led to my interviewing the people, some of the people who participated, were the palliative care physicians in this trial. Because my question was, you know, one option for scaling it is that we say, everybody should have a palliative care clinician from being diagnosed early with any kind of serious illness. Because the palliative care clinicians see their focus as, how do I assure that we use our medical capability to give you the best possible quality of life and not just quantity of life, while the oncologist works on the, uh, the quantity of life? Um, and there are two problems with that. Number one, we don't have anywhere near enough palliative care clinicians or geriatricians, for example, who also look at those kinds of questions from the, uh, for people with very old age. And uh, we don't have nearly enough. We, we couldn't meet 5% of the population's needs. Um, 
uh, if we were taking that on. But second, there's something wrong with the idea that you go see this one clinician who helps you with your quality of life and another for your quantity of life, and somehow you're going to integrate it all. And talking to them, what I realized they were explaining to me was a fundamental change in my conception of what my job is as a clinician. That the fundamental change in conception was I had thought of myself as someone whose role is to be as informative as I possibly can be. I want to be talking to you about the facts of your situation, your options, option A, option B, option C, and then we're going to talk about the pros and the cons and the risks and the benefits, and then I'll turn to you and I'll say, what do you want to do? And more often than not, people would look at me and they would say, what do you think I should do? And I knew, I'd learned in medical school to say, well, that's not really for me to decide. That is, there's no wrong answer here. It's according to what you really feel, what your values are, so what would you like to do? And I can't tell you how often they felt lost, or they made choices where I thought, oh, I don't think that's what you really, really, really want. Or I would find myself pushing or arguing one way or the other, and not really understanding how to do better. And what these palliative care clinicians, geriatricians, hospice workers I met were telling me was essentially that the role I was playing was being a technician. But if we're really going to be the real clinicians, and then we are learning how to be a counselor. And a counselor knows how to ask you your goals and then offer you direction and choices. Um, and not just choices, but say, well, if this is what's most important to you, then here is the option that gets you your best chance of achieving that. The way I'd summarize it is by saying that, um, and this is kind of duh, <laughs> but the key lesson that came out of all of that, you know, interviewing all these people, everything else, was that people have priorities in their life besides just survival. They have priorities for their quality of life as well as their quantity of life. In order to learn those priorities, we have to ask people. But we don't ask. It's important that we ask because the priorities are different from person to person and also because people's priorities change over time as they experience what they're experiencing as they go through a serious illness. But we ask less than a quarter of the time as clinicians uh, for people facing uh, the possibility of the end of life. And when we don't ask, the result is that our care is often out of alignment with people's priorities. Therefore, the result is that people have suffering. And I could see that uh, in the case of Peg Batchelder. You could see it in the hospital. She was suffering. They had given her options. But neither she nor the team had um, any ability to elicit what her priorities really were. Complicating this was that, in fact, neither she nor her team had any imagination of what kind of life worth living is possible. And that's where the, uh, the challenges are. 
what I saw from Temple study interviewing people is that when we do ask, you can get extraordinary results. But how? How do we ask? What I didn't get to get into in the book, which I get to get, talk about with you, is the kind of practical tools that we've begun testing in our research center, um, Ariadne Labs, where I do, uh, where I lead a group of people working on creating scalable solutions for better care delivery from birth to the end of life. And our team working on the Serious Illness Program developed a guide that's broken into a few sections, and it's difficult to read here, but basically it's about guiding, uh, offering a set of questions that you can ask to set people up for the conversation. I'd like to talk to you about what uh, is ahead with your illness and, and uh, do some thinking in advance about what's important for you. Is that okay? Asking what's your understanding of where you are with your illness. And then some questions that help you guide towards um, uh, what is your, how, how are you doing, uh, and what are your priorities, and what's, what's most important to you. And there's simple questions like, what are your fears about what might be ahead with you? What's the minimum quality of life you find acceptable? What are the trade-offs you're willing to make and not willing to make in your care? What are your goals? if time becomes short. I told about one patient who said, minimum quality life, well, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that would be good enough for me. It was the best living will ever, <laughs> because now you can give recommendations. Now you can give guidance um, based on the options in front of you, uh, because he was able to come to and be able to describe what mattered to him. Not everybody can, but I was on the phone talking to Martin and, and Peg, and, um, and I decided, you know, I'd learned, we'd learned these questions, and I decided to try asking them. And so I just went through a few of these questions. I said, what's your understanding of where you are with your illness at this time? And she said, she said, flat out, I'm going to die. There's nothing more they can do. And there was anger in her voice. She, was, she couldn't believe they'd let her get to this place. Martin told me later it was the first time he'd heard her articulate that she was going to die. I then asked, well, what are your goals if time is short. And she said, ah, I don't have any that I can even see possible. And then I was a little flustered. No one had told me what I do when they say that. <laughs> and so I just went on to the next question. <laughs> so I asked, so then what are your fears for the future with your health? And then she gave me a litany. She feared facing more pain. She feared suffering the humiliation of losing more of her bodily control. She feared dying in the hospital. She'd been there for days, she said, and I'm just getting worse. And it, what she was describing was what matters to her. I'd been, as part of my interviewing, uh, I followed a hospice nurse as she went on rounds. And she said something to me after we'd come from visiting a woman who had been with shortness of breath, facing clearly um, uh, 
very uh, difficult situation with advanced congestive heart failure. Um, and I said, what's your aim? What are you trying to do? And she was very clear. She said, the nurse said, my aim, you know, medicine's aim is to sacrifice your time now for the sake of possible time later. But she said, my aim is instead to give people their best possible day now, no matter what that means for the future. Now, ironically, it's almost then that when you do that with people, when you try to give people their best possible days now, when they face a serious life-limiting illness, that um, that they often, uh, that not often, that on average, they have equal or longer life expectancy. And um, and that's what I was seeing. So I said to Peg um, that I, you know, met this hospice nurse, and she'd explained to me that their goal is to give you the best possible day that they can under the circumstances, and that it seemed like it'd been a while since you'd had a good day, Peg. And she said, yes. Yes. It's been a really long time. So I said, is that worth hoping for? Is that even worth fighting for, to have one good day? And maybe that was our goal. 48 hours later, she was going home with a hospice nurse waiting for her to meet with her to see how they might be able to give her her best possible day and maybe her best possible days. The, I broke the news to my daughter, Hunter, that she would not be having any piano lessons anymore. Peg was dying and she was struck low by it that she would likely never see her again. And, um, and then a few days later, we got a call and it was Peg on the phone, and she wanted to know if Hunter was willing and we would let her, whether she could resume teaching her again. And that was more than Peg or I ever imagined. I ended up meeting her nurse, her hospice nurse, a woman named Deborah French, and, and asked Deborah, how did that come about? And she said when she arrived, she, they talked through, you know, what did Peg care about, and then went about making it happen. And at first it was just the daily difficulties of life. Um, getting her pain under control, getting her a hospital bed in her dining room so she could recover in, without having to go up and down, uh, uh, or she could, she could live without uh, going up and down the stairs, get a bedside commode so she could actually get to the toilet without um, fear of soiling herself. They arranged ways to do bathing and dressing. She got um, her, and as her pain came under control, as they increased her medications, and all of these steps came into place. Her anxieties fell and her sights began to lift. And then Martin told me, she, she, he said, she became focused on the main chance, coming to a clear view of how she wanted to live the rest of the days. She was going to go home and she was going to be, she was going to teach. And that took medical expertise. That was not just, we're going to make you comfortable. We're going to leave you be. We're going to make sure you're out of pain. It was calibrating the pain medication so that she could teach, that she wasn't in so much pain she couldn't teach, but not so groggy that she couldn't be functional. Um, it was tuning all of that, and it became possible. Martin said she was more alive running up to a lesson and for the days after than, she, than he had seen her 
in weeks. She had no children. Her students filled that place for her. And she still had some things she wanted them to know before she went. She wanted to be able to say her goodbyes, give her parting advice. Medicine's forgotten how vital such matters are to people as they approach life's end. People want to share their memories. They want to pass on wisdom and keep keepsakes. They want to connect with loved ones. They want to make some last contributions to the world. And that's how life achieves meaning. That is part of the mortal lifespan. And yet we're oblivious to it. We've had a kind of 50-year experiment in medicalizing mortality by becoming the technicians. And the key is to recognize we have to be the counselors. And that's a deep change in our job. It can seem uh, uh, like the obvious answer of what our job is, like we know what our job is. We help people uh, achieve health and independence. But then what is our job when that's not possible anymore, when they're not healthy, and when they're not able to be independent? Um, and you realize that we are lost in those moments. And it's not just about the end of life. It's why this is about serious illness uh, that can threaten to impair your quality of life or your quantity of life. And it also forces us to rethink something about our pattern of life as well. Um, the, the, um, the pattern of life we envision for ourselves nowadays in a modern world where we have medical capability that is enabling people to live on average 80 years when you have access to it, is that life is a state of steady health followed by a crisis event, a catastrophe that we can rescue you from. It may be a heart attack. It may be a car crash. And then we can get you back to your state of health. And then you um, advance further on in life, and you have another crisis event. And then we bring you back again to your steady state of health. And then it goes on this way until we just can't do it anymore. But that's not, in fact, what the pattern of life really looks like. Instead, what we see over time is that life is starting at, a, at, at often an excellent state of health, but then, and then having a, a crisis event, and then we can rescue you from it. And if you have good primary care, we might even be able to prevent it and push it out a little further. But then when that event comes, we rescue you from that event, but you don't get back to being just the way you were. You now are with a chronic illness. And then another event happens, and you may now come to another state with that chronic illness or another chronic illness. And life, then, is the management of chronic health issues. And our goal is larger than just health and independence. Our higher purpose is well-being, even in the face of health, of, of disease and disability. And that's a different job, and the key things to understand is that that involves eliciting people's goals for their physical function, their cognitive function, their emotional life, aligning our care and managing those goals over time, and then coming to, I think, a pretty fundamental bottom line that is quite a different way about thinking about the safety and quality of care. It's to help people and ourselves imagine they're a life worth living, and then use our medical capability to enable it as much as possible.
Our goal is not survival at all costs, nor is it a good death. Our goal is a good life, as good a life as possible, all the way to the very end. Here is um, Peg. Uh, and Peg got to fulfill her final role. My daughter had six weeks of lessons with her, and it was followed by two final concerts, one with her students um, from around the country who had already graduated from her and were in careers around the country who came back together to play a concert, and then a concert with her students from elementary age to high school age uh, playing Brahms and Chopin and Beethoven in her living room. And this is her at that final recital after all the students had played. She died one week later peacefully in her bed. But my final remembrance of her is this moment. After it, she took each child aside and gave them a personal gift of her own and a few words. And to Hunter, she said, she gave a, a book of music. And then she told her, you're special. And that was something that she never wanted any of the kids to forget. Thank you. Well, thanks to Atul for a great QI Connect talk. And if you want to hear how the questions went, or Atul's reflections on his talk, then you can get the full recording on the Healthcare Improvement Scotland website or on YouTube.